0: Well, again, I want to say Happy Mother's Day to all of our CVPC mothers, and even to those that are watching that are not a part of our family. Again, Happy Mother's Day. Um, I know that we are all very grateful for uh, the fact that we have a mother. Some of you, your mother is not here for you to tell her happy birthday. Others of you um, are not with your mothers right now, but... um, we can still thank the Lord and praise the Lord indeed that our mother's faithfulness toward us in giving us life and the sustaining grace that God uses in their lives to continuously bless us. Well, we continue our sermon series today in the book of First John, our Life Together series. And today we're going to pick up the topic of our adoption in Christ or our adoption by God in Christ. And... Um, When we talk about this whole concept of adoption, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the love of the Father that is manifested toward us as His people. Those that were once afar off now have been brought in because of Christ. We have been given this spirit of adoption. And now that we have been adopted, we've been brought into the family of God, there are all these privileges, there are all these things that God says now we have access to. We have access to all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And you can go on and on down the line. We have an inheritance of a salvation that's everlasting. All of these things are a part of our adoption in, in Christ. And so we thank the Lord for that. And I want us to read that this morning and get a true sense of what that is even in our lives. So now I turn your attention to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 28... And we're going to read down to chapter 3, verse number 10, as we look at this subject of our adoption, our adoption as children of God. Here are now the words of God. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let me pause for a moment and highlight that. I love that John says, See what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us so that we may be called the children of God. And just in case you doubt him, he says, and so we are. And so we are. No matter what happens, you are a child of God. Now, that's not the sermon, and I know I need to continue on, but I just had to pause there and remind us of that. Here's the rest of the text. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are our Father and that your word reminds us that this is fixed and sure and yes and amen. And so today I pray that this glorious, wonderful, amazing truth that we have a heavenly father, and we are his children. Yes, we are. That that amazing truth is not only believed, but believed in. That it lodges deep into our hearts and minds. That it's not merely academic or a part of our doctrine, but it is a part of our souls. And that we can revel in that, and use that, and trust that, regardless of where we are. In our point in time. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. When I visited uh, CVPC, one of the things that I kept hearing everyone say is that CVPC is like a family. You know, Pastor Dennis, they're, they're in your business, but in a good way, right? They care about you and they love you. And, and I came here and it is true. You did not lie to me. You, you are a family. And, and you love deeply, and you care for one another deeply. And, and my family has been the recipient of that. You all have done an amazing job caring for us and caring for one another. And by the way, that shouldn't be a surprise. The church isn't supposed to be a social club. The church isn't supposed to be the cool hangout place. The church is supposed to be a family of believers that come together and love one another. In fact, the early church was known for being a big family. They, and they were accused of being incestuous, right? Because uh, people saw that brother was marrying sister, and they're like, what is going on? You used to call her your sister, and she used to call you your brother. What, why are you marrying one another? Because they didn't understand it. They didn't understand this, this family relationship and this love that comes within that particular family relationship. And the thing that makes the church family, in my opinion, so unique is because it transcends so many barriers. Doesn't matter what our ethnicity is, our socioeconomic uh, status is, our educational level is, doesn't matter where we came from. All of us in CVPC came from all these different backgrounds, and yet God has united us together as one big happy family. Now, I am not so naive as to think that we are always going to be one big happy family. Like every family, it's going to be a little messy. It's going to be a little challenging. But the point is, that's what families are. We're a little messy. We're a little challenging. But we love one another anyway. But the thing that does unite us all together that I absolutely love is the fact that we are all united because we have the same Father. I had a friend, he and I used to always joke around and say, Hey, it's my brother from another mother, but same father. And and the same father was always Jesus, uh, was God the Father. And we were the sons, uh, we were like Jesus, um, Jesus being our brother. And the reality of that is a glorious thing, that we have God as our father, and this reality was so overwhelming that John says in verse number one, chapter three, verse number one. He says, see what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And, and that word that he uses, see, see, he means take a look intently. Observe how much God loves you that he brought you into his family. Look intently at it. Uh, I remember my brother growing up, he had a gift for looking intently for things on the ground. And he would find all sorts of things. I remember one day we were walking by, and there was a fire that had calmed down a little bit, and, we, and several people had walked past it, and he looked into the fire, and he said, wait, wait a minute, what is that? And he pulled out a $100 bill. I couldn't believe it. I mean, we were, we were standing there like, I, how did you even see that? Because he was looking intently. Well, John is saying, listen, you and I, we need to look intently at this love that the Father has given to us, that we may be called the children of God. And so what I want to do is I want to take a few moments today and look at what John is saying It's the blessing of us being the children of God. In fact, there are so many in this text, we would be here all day and that would be glorious, but I'll only give you a few, all right? I'll only give you a few. And so I want to look, what are the benefits of our adoption? When we look at this text and we see that God is our Father and we've been adopted into the family of God, what are the blessings that come with that? Well, there are several in this text, and here they are. I want to begin. Number one, the first one is we get God as our Father. Notice with me in chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, See what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us. To my shame... I've always read the Bible, and I've always known that Jesus was my father. But I've always struggled with that reality. Now, some of that could be because I never grew up, I guess, knowing my father. My father died when I was young. Uh, but I, for some reason, I'm more comfortable with thinking of, G- of God as my Lord, right? And most of the times I pray, I pray, Lord, Lord you know, uh, bless me today, help me today. I'm more comfortable with that. Or I'm more comfortable with thinking of him as king. And sometimes I'm more comfortable with thinking of him as this great judge or this physician. Or maybe just as God, the creator. But that's not how Jesus told us we should think of God. In fact, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, Father... Because that is God's chief orientation toward us. Yes, of course, he's Lord. Yes, of course, he's king. Yes, of course, he's the great physician. But beloved, hear me today. First and foremost, he is your father. And he loves you. He absolutely, positively loves you. And to think he wanted to be your daddy. He wanted to be your father. He wants you to call Him Father. That is a glorious and amazing truth. And in John's day, this reality was so vivid because in John's day, fathers in the Greco-Roman world were particularly cruel. Uh, A father in John's day didn't always show affection and he wasn't always equitable toward all of his children. At any point and this, you, you get this in the, in the writings of some of the Roman uh, church fathers and Roman officials during that day, that the father sometimes would take children who were, who were often abused or unwanted or had some kind of deformity, they would take them so they could be exposed. And the, the word exposed there is, is such a cruel thing because it meant simply that the father can order that child to be taken into the middle of the woods and just left there to be... Uh, to be eaten by wolves, or to die from the cold, or to die from starvation. For any reason, if that father didn't want that child, he would take him out and say, let that child be exposed. And it was usually because of some kind of physical deformity. The church father, Tertullian, said this. He spoke of children who were often sacrificed, or drowned, or left out in the cold, or left to starve and to be eaten by wild animals. All of these things they could just do if they didn't want that child, if that child had some kind of deformity. No wonder John said, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that though you and I were deformed by sin, and though you and I were exposed to the elements of this world, that God still looked down and said, I love you. I want you. You're mine. And I want you to be a part of my family. I want you to be able to, I want you to be able to have all the blessings that my children have. That is a profound and wonderful reality. But not only that, not only did he bring us into his family, and now we're his own. The Bible tells us that He preserves us and He holds us fast. John says this here, See what man of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And so we are. That, that phrase right there lets us know that this isn't just a one-time deal where God just says, hey, now you're my children, and then, uh, then He leaves us unattended or abandoned. No. No. That is a sign that God's care is still upon us. That's the sign that our God holds us fast. I love that uh, old English language, uh, that old English word "to hold fast." It means to protect, to provide for, to watch over, to preserve. And that's what our Lord does for us, that as his children, we could be confident in knowing that He has hold us fast that he will not allow us to be plunged into despair, that he will not allow us to be exposed, that he would not allow us to get to a place where he cannot hold us and bear us up. You know, as a father, um, and by the way, let me say this too, that doesn't discount the love of fathers here and now. You know, as a father, I love my children. I will do anything for my children. I, you know, you create these scenarios as a father that, hey, you know, if you're walking in the woods and there's like 10 wolves that come after you and your kids, you'd pick up a stick and you'd fight them all off because you just love your children and you would do anything for them. But the reality is, even as an earthly father, you are fallible. You are limited. You will end up in some way, shape, or form disappointing your children, not being there for them you'll end up uh, frustrating them or angering them to some level. But even as our earthly father, we can point them to their heavenly father that will never, ever do those things. It's not to say that our love as fathers, as earthly fathers, is insufficient. God in his wisdom has allowed it to happen for the preservation of his seed and for his covenant community. But ultimately, God wants us to point, point ourselves, our children, to him, as our chief father, as our heavenly father who provides for us. That's the point of this text. And John is beside himself that we, we, all of us who are exposed to the world, we have a father, and he wants us to glory in that. All right, I could spend uh, the entire time talking about that, but we have a few more. Second of all, that we can become children of God. Of course, if there's a father that has to indicate children, and yes, we are children of God. Now, it might seem strange to you that John is overwhelmed that we are the children of God. After all, you might say, Pastor Dennis, didn't in the Old Testament, weren't the children of Israel called the children of God? I mean, and, and isn't it true that all of us, by virtue of us being in the image of God, are somehow God's children? Well, to some degree, yes. According to the flesh, we are all somewhat God's children. But what John is talking about here that's so profound that, that for him was just unbelievable was the fact that you and I now have been brought into the family of God through Christ and through what Christ did. That it is no longer according to the flesh, but it's according to the sacrifice in which Christ has made for us. That's why later on he says, beloved, in verse number two, beloved, we are, chi- we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. The reason why we are children of God is because of him. He is the ultimate son. He is the only begotten son. And we are being conformed into his image. And I love what uh, Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, "We, we are told that we are children of God, heirs with God, and joint heirs with Christ. Think about that for a moment. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are just like him in God's eyes. When I was a little kid, I used to watch a show uh, called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. And you know, Robin Leach was this eccentric Brit, and and he would go into these homes, and I I mean, you you wouldn't believe the, the extravagance of these homes. And I would always look at these uh, children. These children, you go in the backyard and they have an entire go-kart in the back of their yard or they had a petting zoo. I remember this one time, this kid had almost like an amusement park in the back of his yard. And I thought to myself, and I remember thinking like, wow, wouldn't it be nice to be adopted by that family, you know? You have access to all of this stuff. Um, You have access to all this stuff to be heirs to all that wealth. But beloved, that's... John is saying here that there's no no family you could be a part of on earth that compares to being a part of the family of God. Because our father didn't just build a whole corporation. He built the entire world. And we don't just have a few siblings. We have siblings all across the world, and a few hundred of them go to our church. And we call them brother, and we call them sister. And our Father isn't limited in His resources. He has endless resources. And that's why when we think about God as our Father, when we think about the fact that we are His children, we can take comfort and we can take glory in that. Because there's something wonderful and indeed marvelous about it. So that's the second thing. Notice the third thing. We will be like Christ. I know I've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning it again. Notice with me in verse number two. John says this, beloved, we are children of God now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You think about that for a moment, how wonderful and glorious it is that we are on a spiritual trajectory to be like Christ. Now, why do you think that's important? Why do you think it's important for us as God's children to constantly be thinking about the fact that we are on a spiritual trajectory to be like Christ? One commentator said this. He said, because we are constantly discouraged and wearied by sin. I wish I could tell you how many times this week, even though I was studying this text, there were times when I just didn't feel like a child of Christ, of of the King, of God. I didn't think that God was my Father. I didn't feel like I was a child of God by any stretch of the imagination. Why? Because of sin. Because of things that I thought. Because of things that I did how unkind I was, how unloving I was, how frustrated and angry I got. And all of us from time to time struggle with this, where we have these moments where we're such in despair, we have no joy, we're not happy. You know, we're always looking around, wondering aimlessly, and we're wondering, well, if God is my Father, why do I feel so crummy all the time? I, Calvin says it like this, and, and Calvin uh, certainly, uh, to some degree, Calvin... I think hit hit the nail right on the head. This fact that when you and I as God's people, when when we come before the Lord, notice what Calvin says. He says, physically, we are dust and a shadow and death is always before our eyes. We are exposed to a thousand miseries and our souls to innumerable evils so that we always find a hell within us. The more necessary it is that our senses should be withdrawn from the view of present things, lest the miseries should shake our trust in the happiness which is as yet is hidden. And here's what Calvin is saying in that beautiful statement, that when we look at the world, the world is such full of evil and wickedness, and it darkens our ability to see who we truly are. And Calvin is saying that the cumulative effect of being in this world that we often get in despair. We often feel lonely. We often feel like there's nobody that loves us or cares for us. But the fact that we will be like Christ reminds us that we are on a trajectory towards heaven. That we are on a trajectory towards perfection. That as God's children, he's actively working to bring us into conformity with who we truly are. His beloved. That's what the power of this verse is saying, that we will be like the perfect son, even though we ourselves are very aware of our imperfection. That even though we're very aware of the fact that we don't measure up, and even though we're very aware of the fact that our lives often are filled with unChrist-like or ungodlike behavior and actions, that we are still being brought into conformity and we are still being uh, brought into relationship and becoming like the Son. That's the power of verse number two, that we will be like Him. We'll be like Him. Now, notice the fourth thing. We get gospel confidence. I love this. I love to to feel confident. Who doesn't like to feel confident? Notice what the Word of God says. Chapter 2, verse 28. It says, and now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. As children of God, we get gospel confidence. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. According to John and Paul, this gospel confidence allows us to boldly proclaim Christ and boldly come before the throne of grace to receive that mercy and grace in time of need. It's this gospel confidence we have now as our inheritance. So we need not shrink back in shame. We talked about this whole concept of shame in Sunday school. We talked about how shame causes us to not pursue the righteousness of God, but leaves us with a deep sense of our own failure. We don't have to feel that failure anymore. Christ died to deal with the shame and the guilt of sin. And now the Bible says you and I can walk not just in newness of life, not just in abundant life, but in the confidence in knowing that we have God as our Father. We need not be ashamed. Notice with me the fifth privilege we have. We have an ability to practice righteousness because He is righteous. We see this twice in the text. First of all, 1 John 2, 2 verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Now drop down to chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. There's a righteousness that you and I now have, that this is the blessing that we've been given from God. And John is saying that in order for us to do what's right and also be right, do what's right means practicing righteousness, be right is ourselves being righteous based on the righteousness of Christ. That's a blessing that we get from being a part of God's family. And here's the blessed part of that. You and I don't need to be slaves to sin. We've been freed. We're part of the free people now. We don't have to sin. I I love uh, Augustine here is so helpful. Augustine says that prior to the fall, we had this ability to sin and this ability not to sin. And then when you and I, um, when the fall happened, We lost this ability to not sin, but we retain this ability to sin. And it has certainly caused a great disruption in our life. But Augustine says that when we are adopted into the family of God, when Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, we get back this ability not to sin. We get back this ability to do what is right before the Lord. But not only that, we get back this ability to know what is right, not just to know the good or to do the good, but the ability to see the good. Almost two months ago, in the very last Sunday school we had in person, uh, Garrett Jones talked about this, and I've been, I've been wanting to, to, to just thank him so much for saying this. He said this. He talked about the fact that how glorious it is as a believer to know that There is a right thing to do, and then to be given the ability to actually do it. And he said, I can't imagine being an unbeliever who don't know the right thing and lack the ability to to do the right thing. Now, Garrett wasn't saying this to be prideful or arrogant in any way. In fact, you can tell in his heart that he really longed and yearned for that for unbelievers. But beloved, it's nonetheless true. That we as believers, the blessedness of being a child of God is now we have this ability to do what's right and to know the right thing to do. But our unbelieving relatives and friends, they don't. I have a friend, he goes to New York every now and then, and he does these, um, these, uh, these, these sort of interviews with people where he asks them basic questions of right and wrong. And I was looking at one clip that he has online, and he was asking um, this, this, this uh, couple, a young man and a young woman, hey, is it wrong to steal? Is it wrong to cheat on your spouse? Is it wrong to lie to a friend? Is it wrong to do, um, is it wrong to murder and do all these things? And, and what was shocking about all of this is that all of their, all of their answers were, were just answers of uncertainty. They said, well, I don't know if it's wrong to steal. Perhaps, maybe the situation. I don't don't know if it's wrong to cheat on a spouse. It depends on the situation. What if they don't find out? man? Is it okay? And as I was watching this, my heart began to be so sad because I saw people who were like sheep without a shepherd. I saw young people not knowing what is true and what is base reality because their minds had been so fogged up by the lies of this world and relativism. And, beloved, let me pause here for a moment. I've been talking about the glories of being adopted by Christ, but I want you to know there's a whole group of people out there who don't know what it is to have God as their father. And because of that, they don't know righteousness. They don't know the good to do. And they're suffering and slodging along in this world, confused and without hope. But we have that hope. We know what it is. And we cannot be ashamed to tell them. We cannot hold back. If you know what it is to be adopted by the Father, if you know what it is to be a part of this family, why wouldn't we want other people to be a part of it as well? Why wouldn't we want other people to be adopted into our family? Why would we want to see other people walk around completely confused, not knowing what's right or wrong? That's unloving, actually. It's unloving to see people suffering with this malady of confusion and not do our very best to tell them about who Christ is and tell them that God can be their father as well. Notice the sixth thing real quick. The Bible says, John says, we cannot sin. Notice with me in chapter 3, verse 9. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sin, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning, because he has not been born of God. Now, some people have looked at these verses and said to themselves, well, this means that I can reach a state in my life where I can, you know, it's like sinless perfection. You know, because I, because I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me, and I know God, I can reach to a place in my life where, where I cannot sin anymore. Well, first of all, that's not what John is saying. Because that completely contradicts what John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 8. When he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We cannot, we cannot uh, claim for ourselves sinless perfection if John says that we have to constantly confess that we have sin. But that's, But that's the first thing. The second thing is, that's not John's point in this text. If you have your ESV Bible, this is pretty clear. Inside here, John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So what does John mean by not making a practice of sinning? John says, if you sin as a child of God, you feel profoundly uncomfortable. You should feel undone. We should never get to a place where we feel comfortable sinning. John says we should never get to a place where sin is comfortable for us. No, it shouldn't be. If you are a child of God, your sin should bother you and it should drive you to the cross and plead the forgiveness of the Father. And by the way, I've often heard this is an excellent way to know if you're a Christian or not. If you're an unbeliever, you don't struggle with sin, right? Sin is according to your nature. So you don't wrestle with doing uh, good and evil. You just do what is according to your nature. But if you are a Christian... If you are a child of the king you struggle mightily with that and you should but don't live in the struggle go to your father you know one of the joys that I have as a father is when my children come to me and confess something they did and I didn't catch them you know <laughs> you know if you're a parent you know this that's a win you know, your kid comes to you and says, Dad, I was doing something and, and, you know, I broke this and nobody was around, but I just, want, I just want to let you know that I did this. Would you forgive me, please? And you say, absolutely, of course. Of course I forgive you. Of course I love you. I'm not going to leave you exposed because you broke a vase, right? And the same thing is true of our Heavenly Father. He doesn't want you to keep sinning. He wants you to confess that sin, And he wants you to bring it to him. And he wants you to say, Father, please forgive me. Here's what I've done. Can you help me not to do this again? And the same is true for our unbelieving relatives and friends that even though they're gripped by the power of sin, God wants to be their father. Right now they're exposed to the elements of this world. And he doesn't want that to happen. He wants them to be, indeed, a part of the fold. Here's the last thing I want to give you. Again, there's so much more. We can go on this text for hours, but here's the very last thing I want to give you. We have a spiritual protector. We have a spiritual protector. Notice with me in verse number 8. It says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning... The reason the Son of God appears, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You know, if this, if this audience, if, if uh, all of you were inside, this, uh, in, inside the church today, I would have you all read that text with me. Because it is a powerful verse that Christ came, died on the cross to absolutely destroy the works of the devil. That was his mission. And can I say, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who made a point, who made this point. He said that as a child of God, uh, the devil knows that he can no longer get you into heaven. I mean, into hell. He knows that your, your status before God is absolutely sure. So even though he knows he can't get you into hell, his task is to make you as miserable as possible here on earth. And he he uses various things to do that. And these things are the works of the devil. There are things like making us feel like we're worthless. There are things like depression. There are things like loneliness. There are things like keeping us in bondage to our sin and the things that steal the joy They're the sexual desires that threaten to destroy our marriage. It's the anger and the frustration that he wants to keep us feeling. It's all of these things that the devil knows that if he tempts you and he works at you, all these works will end up stealing your joy from the here and now. He knows, beloved, that he cannot get you into hell, but he tries to create hell on earth by all of the things he puts around us. And so when we read verse number 8, chapter 3 of 1 John, we understand that Christ's death on the cross is designed to destroy those works. So we don't have to feel like that anymore. Christ now is our protector. Why do we need a protector? Because we are exposed. We're no match for the evil one. He will make us miserable even though he knows that we have a home in heaven. But thanks be to God that he gave us a big brother, a protector, a lion from the tribe of Judah. And based on his death on the cross and his resurrection with power, he took the keys of death and hell and he flung it as far as it could be flung. And right now, he lives to protect you and I from the works of the devil. Praise God. Amen. And all of that is by virtue of the fact that we have been adopted into the best family in the world. The family of God. And praise God, that is true. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. What a glorious truth that you are our Father. That is fixed and secure. And even now, you have given us godly fathers in our midst to remind us of that. But Father, you've also done something else, and you've provided godly mothers. And so even today, as we set aside a day to honor our mothers, we thank you. Thank you for them. And thank you for your goodness toward us, your children. Father, I pray for that child that's yours, that is wayward, bring them back. For that child who's been adopted and doesn't know it yet, bring them in. And Father, that child who is running away from you, please, Father, bring them back. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we close our service with a song.